Hi listeners, and welcome to the I Am Global podcast series, the podcast of International Management Division of the Academy of Management. I am Luis Ricardo, and together with the members of the Membership Drive Committee, we are going to talk to scholars from the I Am Division to know more about them, their research and motivations. And I should add, this podcast is one among many initiatives of the IAM division to foster research and practice of management with cross-border and cross-cultural dimension. Visit us at im.aom.org to get it started. Now on to the show. Welcome to the fourth episode of the IAM Global, the podcast series of the International Management Division of the Academy of Management. I am Luis Ricardo, your host, and today we have the privilege to talk to Dr. Alvaro Cuervo Casurra, Professor of International Business and Strategy, and Deloitte Mullin, Research Fellow at the Damore McKean School of Business at Northeastern University. Alvaro, welcome to this episode. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to join you in this conversation. Uh, Alvaro, you are one of the main scholars in IB and especially focusing on emerging economies. Could you tell us your history with IB and why did you became interested in this topic and why emerging economies in particular? Uh, my interest in on the topic of emerging economies and especially emerging economies multinationals goes back to two main events. Uh, traveling, uh, which is, if you want, non-academic related, uh, and also work I did when I was doing my PhD at MIT and the work I did in Argentina. So first I was uh, interested in traveling. I like traveling. And uh, when I was a young uh, man, uh, I loved traveling in Europe. And uh, when I went to some emerging markets uh, like uh, Turkey and Mexico, uh, I realized that, uh, yes, they were poorer, but uh, in many cases there were lots of really interesting ways in which they were solving problems. Uh, there were innovations that I thought were really creative, and that made me think, hey, these countries, uh, the companies, individuals, uh, they have something we don't have in advanced economies. And it was kind of an intriguing story, but I wasn't really sure what it was about. At the time, I was just a student, so I didn't really uh, analyze it in more detail. Then when I joined MIT to do my PhD, and there was a big project uh, analyzing the upgrading of uh, competitiveness of Argentinian companies. I was involved in that project as a research assistant, and I was able to travel to Argentina. I visited Mendoza and Buenos Aires, and I did lots of interviews. Uh, and uh, during those interviews, that's when I realized, hey, these are really good companies. They are really creative. They are solving lots of problems and that we take for granted. I mean, mostly institutions, development, and the ease uh, of uh, interacting uh, highly educated labor and that we take for granted in advanced economies. They are created in solving this and there is something here I want to, to understand in more detail. And that's what's mostly prompted me to basically continue doing this. The result of that trip was that my thesis was a comparative study of uh, Spanish and Argentinian companies, uh, trying to understand how they evolved and uh, became global competitors after going through the uh, 
import substitution period, then economies liberalized at the same time, and the two economies moved from dictatorship to a democracy. The companies were exposed to foreign competitors, Much uh, many companies came into their country, uh, and uh, there was a really interesting process in which they were investing and developing capabilities at the same time they were expanding and redefining their scope. And that's basically what set my interest in this topic, and that's what I have been continued doing for the last um, 20 years. Great. So this year in particular, 2020, has been challenging for both families, business and countries alike. And actually, a recent study uh, from the U.S. Federal Reserve shows that the impact of this current pandemic on emerging markets are substantially more important than developed countries. And they go further and say this substantially complicates the task for normalizing their economies. So in your opinion, by studying and doing research in these uh, countries, how emerging market firms need to prepare to deal with these economic and environmental uncertainties? In this case, uh, we can think of two different ways of analyzing this. Uh, one is that uh, many emerging market companies uh, and individuals in emerging markets are used to crisis. And yes, the pandemic is a big shock for advanced economies. Uh, 2008 was also, if you want, a, a shock for many of us living in advanced economies, but uh, this is not unusual in many emerging economies, unfortunately. And what I have studied is mostly Latin America uh, and uh, the hyperinflation uh, period that many of those countries experienced in the 1980s and uh, the periodic recurring crisis that they have both economic and political, they create a lot of uncertainty and that makes managers be aware of it and prepare for it. Uh, in many cases, they are much more flexible mentally uh, in regards to what is going to happen. Uh, as a result, their investments tend to be uh, slightly different uh, they tend to already embed in them a degree of flexibility because just in case uh, things don't uh, pan out and the economy doesn't do as well as they, they expect it to do. So there is, if you want, a, a skill that uh, managers, individuals have in emerging economies that is good for, uh, if you want, uh, the current situation. Uh, you are used to uh, dealing with uncertainty. You basically continue doing with this. The big transformation, and this is a slightly different uh, issue with the pandemic now, is uh, the big shock to demand. Uh, in most cases, uh, crisis, yes, they were problematic. Uh, you might uh, not be able to sell here, but you could always sell uh, abroad. And uh, now there has been a big shock to the services, and those services are local. And that is something that many of us were not expecting. And the closure of uh, completely local services, uh, restaurants, gyms, bars, uh, hotels, uh, airlines, uh, basically stopped operating. This is very new. Uh, and the result of this is, especially in emerging economies, uh, a problem with poverty and very large increase in poverty. 
And these are countries that for the most part did extremely, relatively well, especially after the 1990s and during the 2000s and 2010s, most of them grew and the poverty was reduced. Many of the people that used to be poor moved into the new middle classes. And the shock has been that uh, many of them have gone back to poverty. Uh, and this is uh, what I'm afraid is going to be something that is going to have a long lasting effect uh, because it's going to take a while for the economies to recover. Um, the pandemic has in some cases disrupted uh, attitudes. Uh, we have embraced technology, which at the same time has also undermined many business models and the result is that many of the people working and living in emerging economies have been deeply affected and uh, it will take uh, much longer than advanced economies to recover, partly because uh, governments are unable to provide the same level of support uh, to individuals and partly because uh, many of those economies uh, are highly dependent on global services. And those will take uh, some time to recover back to what used to be the case before. If we recall the recent past about globalization and uh, the observed move towards more nationalist practices affecting international trade and relations, for example, the U.S.-China recent trade uh, conflict, the Brexit in, in Europe. So do you think that these trends, uh, future trends in globalization also are going to be affected or this is disconnected what we are living right now? What do you think? And that is, all of it is connected. Uh, and at the same time, I think there is going to be a continued globalization, but a different type of globalization. Um, there, the discussion we have now is about uh, the decrease of globalization, how globalization is dead, how we are going back to uh, nationalism. Yes, there is a lot of rhetoric and there is, might be some effects. I do think that especially in terms of international trade and investment, much of it is driven by economic rather than political conditions. Uh, the economic crisis of 2008 saw a reduction in foreign direct investment and the some is slowing down in trade. And now we are probably going to see something similar. Uh, but I think that we have to remember that uh, globalization has changed away from um, physical goods uh, and into services, away from the movement of money into the movement of information. And that part uh, is continuous growing. Services, uh, products, if you think about them, uh, now are no longer just something that is tangible. Many of them come associated with an app or some kind of a, a artificial intelligence that tracks their use. And now the companies are selling you a service rather than the physical product uh, that has continued and expanded uh, in use. Uh, the same thing with how we are using uh, products, uh, smartphones uh, have emerged as a really uh, major source of change and disruption, not only enabling some uh, companies to merge uh, apps that enable you to uh, hail a, a car or uh, get your food delivered, but also, and more importantly, uh, they have brought up the, import the importance of uh, data and information. 
and data continues moving globally. Uh, there is, of course, politically, some uh, politicians try to block uh, some of those uh, foreign companies, but the reality is that the structure of the economy uh, is slowly moving towards intangibles, and those are difficult to measure. And I think that's uh, one of these uh, situations in which uh, we don't really understand uh, how globalization is progressing or has continued to progress because we are not really measuring the transformation of globalization away from tangible assets and money and into services and uh, data. So I do, I am positive on the continuation of uh, globalization. Uh, and at the same time, I think that we have to start moving uh, and starting to, uh, as researchers, uh, analyzing these new trends and uh, rethinking our models of uh, what is a multinational, how do multinationals operate, and what is interesting about uh, analyzing these companies. Perfect. So then uh, to add a new complexity in this, in this whole uh, picture, there is a new trend in the environmental, social, and governance discussion that is affecting multinationals. So even though this discussion has been around for more than 30 years, uh, if we think about the early summit in Rio in 1992 and its outcome, the Rio Declaration back there, in your opinion, what are the challenges and opportunities for emerging market multinationals in this new debate on environmental, social, and governance? I think that uh, many of these companies have already been engaged in uh, sustainability for a long time. And they did not consider it this way. Uh, they considered this as something that they needed to do uh, in, able to, in order to, able, to be able to operate. So many companies, uh, especially large companies, provided uh, healthcare and education, in some cases housing uh, to their employees, because and that was the way for them to make sure that they had uh, employees that could uh, work well in, in their uh, operations. And some of them pushed this idea further, and then they made uh, this, uh, if you want, investments, uh, uh, have a bigger impact on the communities. Uh, creating, for example, universities. Uh, the Monterrey Tech system in Mexico uh, was created by uh, a group of uh, managers uh, in the northern uh, city of Monterrey who realized that they needed engineers. They, uh, the, the local university was not able to produce the, them in enough quantities, so they decided to create a university. And instead of just training engineers for their companies, they decided this is good for the community, so let's just uh, create a university that is going to basically upgrade the uh, educational uh, level. That was replicated in other uh, cities in Mexico, and as a result, you have now one of the leading universities, and that basically emerged as, if you want, something that we will now understand as corporate social responsibility, but at the time it was not uh, perceived as such. Uh, so many of these companies have already embraced this. There is a good trend, and this is something that I do like. Uh, on top of it, uh, there has been this movement around the world and rethinking in the objective of companies. And uh, again, many of these emerging market companies uh, were family owned, Family-owned companies behave differently, and they do have, uh, to some extent, uh, they place more importance on the impact on society because their names and the, 
relations are there and uh, many of them have been to some extent, uh, if you want to call them more responsible that we will expect. The difference is that uh, this has not been uh, presented as such. It was kind of in, embedded in the mindset as this is the right thing to do. And we have to take care of uh, our workers. We have to take care of our local community. Now, as they go out, they are bringing some of these practices. And I do think that uh, there is a lot of uh, good movements and trends towards sustainability at the same time. Uh, uh, we need to do more about it, uh, and especially now with the climate crisis, uh, which does require the collaboration of all governments and large companies and small companies, and also consumers around the world to try to remedy this. Uh, so um, there is a good movement, and I think that uh, emerging market companies are contributing positively, of course. You can always argue that uh, there is an example of a company that wasn't doing the right thing. But for the most part, I do think that uh, there is a, a good movement towards uh, the realization that this is a large problem and we have to collaborate together to solve this. Uh, good point. And uh, recently, the European Union uh, is negotiating with Latin American countries uh, a trade agreement, right? And very recently, I think this last week, they mentioned that uh, for this to go forward, uh, they are going to ask those countries to be more committed to this kind of environmental policies, and which mm -hmm. includes uh, companies doing business in Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, and all, all those, right? So those countries, some of their companies are much more related to commodities, uh, agriculture products, uh, that eventually are more uh, harmful eventually to, to the environment. So how do you think that pressure from developed countries, uh, mm -hmm. even by trade agreements or, let's say, uh, institutional investors like Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street that are putting pressure to multinational companies that uh, issue shares abroad to move towards uh, this agenda, how do you think that specifically this international pressure on those markets is going to happen? And there is this trade-off between development and sustainability, and that's how this is usually framed in emerging economies. Mm -hmm. The story is uh, you had your chance, you are advanced uh, because you destroyed your uh, forests and you mined uh, your uh, land uh, now it is our chance to do the same thing so please don't tell us what to do with our land uh, i think this is a mistake and there is a this is uh, important to realize that technologies now are much more sophisticated and advanced than the technologies that we used before you can achieve both development and uh, sustainability at the same time and uh, it's not a matter of a uh, having extremely sophisticated technologies and lots of robots, but rethinking production processes, rethinking packaging, rethinking how do you distribute products. This is achieved both in advanced and developing countries. And I do think that, yes, it is good that uh, there is uh, pressure to uh, be more uh, environmentally sustainable, but I think that uh, there is also the need for consumers as, as individuals to take responsibility for this. 
And it is our actions at the end of the day, the ones that are going to determine uh, whether companies uh, are going to react uh, towards a more sustainable production process and distribution process or not. Uh, many cases, yes, we do uh, see that uh, concerted actions by consumers, uh, not only in advanced economies, but also are now primarily in emerging economies because they are the ones who are suffering from pollution. Uh, is putting a lot of pressure on companies to do things differently. And indeed, they are also putting a lot of pressure on governments to do better. So again, this is a global problem. This is not something that only one company or one government can deal with. Uh, and it is great that now we have seen a big shift in attitudes away from uh, the focus on profitability and trying to integrate uh, all of these uh, sustainability and externalities. But at the same time, uh, we have to not... Uh, and reduce our own responsibility as consumers and uh, basically buy the products and that you think are coming from companies that are more uh, sustainable and uh, something more complicated, uh, consume less. Uh, it is inconvenient uh, to uh, not buy as many products or replace the wardrobe as uh -huh. often or uh, having to use public <laughs> transportation or... Uh, walking instead of uh, using a car because it might be too hot or too cold outside. But nevertheless, this is basically what's going to make uh, the big uh, impact on trying to basically reduce the uh, or prevent the climate crisis that is going to be happening. If we don't do anything, uh, we are going to end up with a very large problem and no uh, future generations might not be able to deal with it. We have to start now. Good point, and it recalls me the the Bovespa, which is the yes. stock exchange mm. market in Brazil. Uh, they have the sustainable index. There is a, a trend happening there as well. Good, uh, Alvaro. One of the opportunities of this podcast is to know better the scholars we often read and cite. As a full professor and international reference in our field, tells us a little bit about you. What is a regular day for a full professor and how do you balance your personal and professional interests? Um, there is a pandemic day and there is a non-pandemic day and life uh, is slightly different uh, nowadays, uh, the same as uh, most people. I stay home, I work at home and uh, rarely uh, go out. Uh, the usual day, if you want, is uh, waking up, get ready, prepare breakfast, uh, start writing. Uh, and this is important. Uh, I like to write in the morning. That's when I'm mentally most productive. Um, and then after lunch uh, and then some extra work after lunch, uh, I usually have a break, uh, partly because... Uh, I have to take care of my son and partly because uh, I see if you want the afternoon as a period uh, for a family, personal development. Uh, I do karate uh, and uh, so that's uh, when I go and train at the outside at the dojo. Uh, it has changed. It used to be uh, full of people. Now it is only five people together uh, with masks and everything else. Uh, I'm also teaching there. Um, and then uh, at night is basically uh, finish the day, make sure that uh, my son is uh, 
in bed and then I will just continue maybe for one or two hours, uh, mostly answering emails and doing, if you want, a busy work, but not quite uh, doing creative work. It's the end of the day, I'm tired. Uh, that's mostly what has happened during the pandemic. Before the pandemic, uh, and that's what I hope will happen after this is over, uh, I will go to the office. The main difference, and this is something that is important for me, I like to have a separation between uh, personal life and work life. So I like going to the office and then working at the office. When I go there, uh, that's what I do. I work. Uh, I don't really go there to socialize. Yes, I have meetings uh, and I have uh, interactions with people, but for the most part, uh, I try to just limit those because that's a limited uh, period of time. I want to make sure that uh, when I go back home, I'm not pushing uh, work into my, if you want, a uh, family and personal time. And then... On weekends, uh, mostly uh, hiking uh, when the weather is good. Uh, also, uh, again, before the pandemic, uh, and there was a lot of driving around uh, to soccer matches and to take my, my son uh, and then to meetings when he was younger to uh, play dates. Um, now it's mostly uh, going out nature. Uh, I picked up the cycling. Uh, it's another of the benefits of the pandemic that hey let's do something so uh, no we uh, we are not going to to make a, to have long long distance travel so let's do that and then another thing that i that is different uh, but i hope uh, we will be back is traveling uh, as i mentioned before i like traveling i like uh, learning uh, what happens in other countries i'm really curious about uh, and the sophistication and abilities and the skills and the, the, the entrepreneurship that you see elsewhere. Uh, and I try to understand what is happening. So that's something I really like and something I really miss uh, from the pandemic. So once this is all over, back to the conferences. Uh, conferences are great, uh, not just to present and meet uh, colleagues and co-authors, but also uh, to see something different and take a few extra days uh, to explore the, the city or if not the region. Um, Great. If you have to give a final message to a PhD student from IM division and to a manager in a multinational company in emerging markets, what would you say to them? For the PhD students, I will tell them to study something they really like something they are passionate about rather than something that is the latest topic. Uh, this is important because uh, you are going to be with this topic for at least uh, three, four, five, ten years. If you don't really like the topic, it's a really miserable life. And the whole point of becoming an academic is that you are your own boss. You can decide uh, the topics you analyze. So choose whatever you like. It's not popular. It doesn't matter. Uh, you can make it popular because you are producing good work. Uh, and in some cases, uh, you become uh, lucky, uh, as I was uh, when I started analyzing emerging market multinationals. It was not a popular topic. Then it became a popular topic. Yes, partly because I did a lot of work, but I was not the only one. So focus on something that you like and then have a point of view. Um, if you like psychology, 
approach it from the point of view of psychology. If you like economics, approach it from the point of view of economics, political science, sociology, so that you have not only something that you like, but a point of view in, that enables you to analyze that topic. So those will be my two recommendations for PhD students. For managers of emerging market companies, uh, the recommendation is uh, be less uh, afraid of advanced economies. Um, in many cases, especially mid-sized companies, there is this perception that um, companies from advanced economies are much better. Many of them are, but many of them are not. Uh, and there are lots of extremely good companies in emerging economies that uh, don't go out because there is a fear that, well, they always have the better technology. They are the bigger companies. They have uh, the more sophisticated managers. Uh, once you go out, you realize that is not the case. Uh, you are able to operate in extremely complex environments and dealing with uh, really difficult, challenging situations. That gives you an ability to make decisions uh, and uh, understand the uh, complex situations much better than uh, managers uh, from advanced economies. So my suggestion is go out, uh, don't be afraid uh, by what you perceive as being better uh, competitors. And at the same time, be careful with uh, going out. I always recommend exports are best. They are simple, and if you made a mistake, uh, it doesn't really matter that much. You just lost a few uh, hundred thousand dollars, maybe, or a few containers. Investments are really complicated. Uh, yes, it's lovely to be able to say, I run a multinational, but it is really complicated to run a multinational. So if you plan to do it, uh, you not only have to explore the opportunities of other countries, but whether you your own company can be benefit from this. And especially who is going to be running that foreign operation. In many cases, uh, the technology is there, the marketing is there, those capabilities, it is the managerial capability that limits the ability of emerging market companies to be successful in other countries. So I will caution against uh, going out and investing. Uh, start with internationalization, learn, and only if uh, you think that yes, I can manage uh, the operations, that's when you should be going out. And when you do that, go fast. Uh, this is something that makes advanced economy multinationals uh, different. They're really fast at decision-making and they are really bold. And it's partly because, hey, we are used to dealing with complex situations at home. Going to other countries is not going to be much more complicated. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much, Alvaro. Thank you for being in our podcast and especially for sharing your path to develop such a successful career in our profession and to share your thoughts about international business and emerging economies. Thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to have a conversation with you. And I hope that everybody has a good uh, coming out of the pandemic and uh, we will see each other uh, soon. Thanks for joining us for another episode of I Am Global. If you like this episode, please like the track and share it in social media. Stay safe.